Hello everybody and welcome to a podcast of Biblical Proportions. Episode 40, Baby Moses, the rapper, and the Nehelamite. I want to thank Nicole, Charles, and Tom for joining our tribe on patreon.com slash biblical proportions. Thank you guys. Today we meet the most important prophet in Judaism and the central character of the book of Exodus, Moshe. Moses. In the previous episode, we met the three people who took part in the first chapter of Exodus. We had our first editor, we had our second editor, and then we had our very talented writer, who put together the wonderfully deceptive story of the evil king who wants to eat your babies. And as with the baby massacre from chapter 1, no one in the entire Bible beyond this story is aware of any of the events we're going to discuss today. Let's do a quick recap of this iconic story. A baby is born in hiding. His mother keeps him for three months until she has no choice but to put him in a basket along the Nile in order to save him from the evil king's minions. Luckily, the baby is picked up by that evil king's daughter, the princess of Egypt, who takes him into the palace. The princess names the baby Moshe, Moses. And not only does she raise the person who will free the Hebrews from her daddy's grip, but the royals are even fooled into hiring the baby's mother to breastfeed her own baby. The evil king actually foots the bill for the mom to feed her cub. A salary! <laughs> Ah, stupid evil king. If you're keeping score at home, we're four stories into Exodus, and the poor king of Egypt is O of four. All four texts have King Evil trying to hurt the Hebrews in some way, and all of them end with him being outsmarted by the resilient, pesky Hebrews. Mm. Even though he's gonna fail over and over in this book, this king will never get tired of losing. <laughs> But before we get into the comedy in the story, it bears mentioning that this short story is the only piece of concrete information the Bible has on the origins of Moses. So that's big. Scholars have poured over the baby in a basket story, and there are several exciting theories about the Egyptian origins of Moses and the reality behind this archetypical legend about a special baby, abandoned and destined for greatness. So we're focusing today on the baby Moses story. But through the baby Moses story, we will also explore the story of the person who wrote the baby Moses story. And we also have the story of how the baby Moses tale got into Exodus without any of the other stories knowing anything about it. And how does the prophet Jeremiah fit into all of this? Ugh. Let's dive in. Hi everybody, this is Gil. Our protagonist for this episode is the person I nicknamed last time, our talented writer. Scholars call our talented writer the e-source for Exodus. That he wrote separately 
from the other writers of Exodus. For example, our talented writer knows nothing of no plagues, and the other writers of Exodus are ignorant of the stories by our talented Mr. E. But first I have an addition to the previous episode about the first chapter of Exodus. I can't believe I missed it, but his story of the baby killing concludes with a cliffhanger. A cliffhanger. A goddamn cliffhanger. Pardon my French. I completely missed it. <laughs> so after the two midwives, Pua and Shifra, save the babies by not killing them, the story concludes with the famous decree, Every baby that is born, throw him to the Nile. The end of part one. <laughs> There's a sequel. <laughs> this is water well talk material right there. What we have here is an ancient cliffhanger. This could be the first recorded cliffhanger in history. Oh no, the story ends with the royal decree to kill all the babies. It says kill them, kill them all. Boom, end of story. Oh my goodness, I can't wait for the sequel. You bet your ass, I'm going to binge all 10 verses of the second part of the story once it's out. Mm. We have a very talented writer. First thing we need to know about the story of baby Moses is that it's only 10 verses long, 124 words. In English, it jumps to about 270 words. Anyways, this means that there are very few details and that each detail counts. And each omission counts. This is not the kind of story that you just scribbled and post on ancient Facebook. This is a meticulously written story. It has a clear and direct energy and momentum and every word is chosen very carefully. Let's go over it. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. There's a nice sound word play with Ishmi Beit Levi, literally from the house of Levi, Vaikachet Bat Levi, and took a girl of Levi. Beit, house, bat, girl, Beit, bat, nice, nice, nice. But other than that, there's nothing to distinguish the mother or the father outside of their affiliation to the clan of Levi. The origin stories in Genesis, if you remember, they have lists upon lists of ancestors. Here, nothing. So our very talented writer doesn't think that the parentage or parents of Moses are of any importance. He has more details <laughs> about the basket that the baby's going to place in than about the parents. Whatever, he's a Levite. Okay, wait, wait a second. Moses is a Levite. And there is one thing we know so far about the Levites from Genesis. They're cruel, violent motherfuckers not to be trusted according to Genesis. So the one thing of note here is that the hero of Exodus hails from a tribe the authors of Genesis despised. These are the same political factions we discussed. The Hebrews in Judah and Jerusalem had a choice. They could cut a deal 
with the almighty Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar to pay tribute. Or they could stand strong in the face of evil and put their faith in Yahweh to save the day. They were very political. The values expressed in Genesis are familial. And the values expressed in Exodus are political. So Moses, he's a Levite. Now back to the story. This is about the baby's mom. When she saw that he was a fine child, in Hebrew, literally, it was good. He was good. She hid him for three months. In Hebrew, it's three moons, which is awesome, because this is an ancient story. So they counted moons. So that's cool. But that's not <laughs> but that's not the interesting thing here. A baby here the story that we're told is that a baby is born and his mother thinks that he's good. Vaterekitov. Huh? It's a good baby. His mother says so. And because it's a good baby, <laughs> she decides to hide him. If you weren't a good baby, you know, maybe she would have gotten rid of him, I don't know. Delivered him to the Nazi Egyptians. If we read it as a serious story, we're going to see. It doesn't work or make sense at all. So I've been saying that this story and this writer is intentionally funny. But this part might be too funny for it to be intentional. I don't know. It seems like like four-dimensional comedy <laughs> or something. What is highlighted here as special and unique <laughs> is that the mother likes her baby enough <laughs> to try to keep him alive. <laughs> I don't know, is this guy that funny? Previous special babies were born magically thanks to Yahweh to barren women or were blessed before they were born by Yahweh or given as a gift, as an addition, Joseph, Joseph by Yahweh, and this conceivably could be satirical, saying this is another kind of origin story where just the mother likes her baby. <laughs> That's the magical part. That's what separates him from other people. His mother liked him. Like the complete antithesis to being chosen by God. I keep going back and forth here could be just a template, generic, getting through the motions to get to the real part of the story, the important, the core of the story, or it could be ironic and the funniest shit I've ever read in my life. How This is like Monty Python, uh, the life of Brian stuff. How do we know that this baby is going to grow up to be someone special and important? Oh. His mom said he was a good baby. <laughs> what does that say about all the other moms who didn't hide their babies <laughs> from the pharaohs? What does it say about the babies? The babies weren't good or the mothers <laughs> weren't good. I don't know. This, this might be me reading too much humor into this story. So I don't know about this part. Let's move on. Now, this was a good baby. If you weren't there, you missed it. You just had to see this baby. You have to see the baby. 
And after three months of hiding the good baby, it becomes too risky to keep this going, and the mother has to place the baby in the river. Why is it too dangerous? Are the ancient Egyptian SS soldiers patrolling the Hebrew towns looking for babies? This danger would make for a fantastic story. The evil Egyptian stormtroopers tried to get their murderous hands on this special good baby who would grow up to be the savior. <laughs> this is like the machines in the Terminator cinematic universe trying to kill John Connor as a baby. <laughs> oh my god, we need to hide this good baby who would grow up to save the world. But this is not what the story is about. This story is about sticking it to the hapless evil king. So next, the mother puts the baby in a basket that is as solid as any basket. In English, it's a papyrus basket that she coated with tar and pitch. So she didn't just, you know, send him on his way. No, no, no. There's motherly care here. And there's also knowledge of the vegetation of the Nile and the use of reeds in making boats. Scholars have pointed that out. But I would like to point out that people living in Mesopotamia have been building everything from reeds since before 3000 BCE. So this could be written from anywhere. Back to the good baby. The image that we have in our minds is of the basket uh, floating on the Nile currents. But actually the baby wasn't sent into the river, into the currents. No, the mother placed the basket in the reeds along the banks of the Nile, seemingly specifically to keep the basket from the currents. The basket is motionless. And the baby's sister, she's looking out to see what's going to happen next. She is now our point of view character. I have a suspicion here that the sister is a later addition by our second editor. I have a hunch that there are some editing touches here, but this is speculation and it's better to just move on with the story. That little phrase of his sister looking on to see what's going to happen next, that's good stuff. It gives us the feel of reading a first-person account and we feel the tension of the sister looking to see if her baby brother is going to make it. And that's when the pharaoh's daughter goes to bathe in the river. How fortuitous. This happened at the same time and the mother was able to place the basket right there on the banks of the royal palace where the princess <laughs> goes to bathe. Okay. The princess sends one of her slaves to look into the basket. And it's a crying baby. The princess immediately recognizes this baby as a Hebrew baby. And she knows that those were supposed to be cancelled by her dad. The baby's cries make her feel compassion towards the baby. So it's right there and then where the princess decides to keep this good baby, that the baby's sister somehow <laughs> interjects into the conversation between Egyptian royalty and her slaves. I guess the Egyptians were very cruel towards Hebrew newborn baby boys, but a Hebrew slave girl can just come up to the princess and be like, hey, if you happen to need a midwife, I know someone just perfect for the job. 
Do we think that slaves had access to the part of the Nile where the princess bathes? What? Can we imagine an African slave just coming up to George Washington's daughter and be like, hey, if you need something, just holler? We don't have to be Egyptologists to know that there is no way in hell that a slave girl could just come up to a princess and offer unsolicited help and cheat her also. No, 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 no. This is an ancient legend, written as a legend, meant to be understood as a legend. A poor slave girl talking to a princess. That happens a lot in legends and fantasy tales. Doesn't really happen in reality, though. And here's the punchline of the story. The baby sister suggests to the pharaoh's daughter that she fetch her a Hebrew wet nurse to breastfeed the baby. And the princess agrees. And the baby sister goes ahead and gets her mom. The baby's mom is now getting paid a salary by, by the Egyptian royal court to breastfeed. Hey, king. You're going to pay for this, literally. How about them apples? Mm. So, the, so first the mother had to nurture her baby in hiding as the SS brutes were on the prowl. But now she's going to get some coins to take the baby back home and continue breastfeeding him, legally. Even though he's a Hebrew newborn baby boy, those exact humans <laughs> that the king decreed should be thrown into the Nile. Well, his daughter picked one up out of the Nile. The Hebrews are clearly ahead. No baby ever died. And the one baby that we have got back to his mother with some extra money to boot. <laughs> the stupid king got clowned by women again. First it was the midwives Pua and Shifra in chapter 1. And now it's the mom, the sister, the princess, and the princess's personal female slaves. They all conspired, sort of, to make the king into an Egypt. And the epilogue of the story is that once the baby is weaned, he's taken back to the Egyptian court, where the pharaoh's daughter gives him the name Moshe. Because she took him out of the water. Mashitihu. That's it. That's the only story we have in Exodus about pre-adult Moses. So to sum it up. Two Levites unite and procreate. A good baby is born. Hidden from the clutches of the evil king who wants him dead by throwing him into the Nile. But once the baby is abandoned along the banks of that Nile... The king's daughter picks him up out of the Nile, hires the baby's mom to breastfeed the baby, and then takes in the baby to raise him in the royal court. She then names him Moshe, Moses. If this is a story about a sad and difficult time for the Hebrew slaves in Egypt, then it's just full of holes and problems. Who relayed the details? How was the baby hidden? What did the other Hebrews say when they saw that their neighbor's baby was a special baby, special enough to be saved? But their babies, they were just regular babies who deserved to die. Uh, where is Yahweh in all of this? Where is a prophecy about the fate of the special baby? A promise about what he's going to do? 
with all the requisite biblical templates that we'll see later in the story. How did the slaves get access to the part of the Nile where the divine royals bathe? Hmm? How could the baby sister just step up and talk and offer suggestions to the royal princess? Why would the princess hire a Hebrew wet nurse to breastfeed the baby she wants to raise as her own son? Wouldn't she want to hide the fact that this is a slave baby and not a royal baby? Why not hire an Egyptian wet nurse? Why is it specifically mentioned that the mother got paid to breastfeed her baby? Is that important? Theologically? What did the princess tell her dad about the sudden appearance of a baby <laughs> in his house? <laughs> no, daddy, it's not my baby. It's someone else's baby. I'm not pregnant. I wasn't pregnant. <laughs> Who did she say was the baby's father? <laughs> what did the supposed father have to say? When Moses goes back to the palace over and over, he doesn't know he was raised there. His future nemesis, the future pharaoh, will not know that this leader of slaves was raised in that palace. This plot ends here, never to be mentioned again. So many questions and problems, and each requires an enormous effort to explain that maybe this, or maybe that, or maybe something else. But if we read this ancient biblical story as a standalone, tongue-in-cheek origin story, adapted from well-known origin stories, and also tweaked a little bit to make fun of a stupid evil king. If this is the way you read the story, there are no problems at all. All the pieces fit perfectly together, harmoniously. All the questions I just raised about the story are not problematic if you look at it as a funny little legend. Because there are no plot holes in mythology. It would be like asking, why was the Greek fire god, Hephaestus, crippled if he had the power to change his appearance magically? Oh, because it's a legend. How come Aphrodite has two origin stories? Because it's a legend. Why didn't Lord Krishna warn his cousin that he was about to get conned and thus, you know, save him and his family the grief of 13 years of exile? Because it's a legend. You know, the historical accounts in the Bible are very detailed and explain what is going on in the same format that other people around them wrote history. And the Hebrew folktales are similar to the folktales of other people around them. If there weren't already tales of Moses freeing the Hebrews from bondage, no one would have sat down to write how Moses was saved as a baby. You know, good, solid, non-heroic people don't get origin stories of abandoned babies. I know personally a person who, as a baby, in mortal danger by the actual Nazis, was sent to be raised with other families for safekeeping. No one wrote her story because she didn't grow up to be a national hero. No, she grew up to be, among other things, my mom. Reading this baby in a basket story, I can't stop thinking about my mom. An actual baby born in actual hiding during the Second World War. Hidden for some time 
until her mom and dad could no longer hide her as a baby because they had to keep moving and hiding and couldn't risk this newborn baby girl being discovered and taken away by the Nazis. So my mom's parents had to pay other local non-Jewish families to pretend that the baby was theirs. My grandparents had to abandon their month-old baby in the hands of strangers in order to keep that baby safe. Real talk. I know that everybody listening in now, we can all feel how the energy just changed when I started to tell the story. This is what a serious account of an actual baby in a basket story feels like. It's dramatic to the core. An abandoned baby. You abandon your baby to keep him safe. This is like... (gasps) Your heart stops. The drama is palpable. The baby Moses in a basket story is not that kind of story. My grandmother didn't get paid by Hitler to breastfeed my mom. That's not how real persecution works. For example, I want to know why, why did the writer omit the incredible hardship, heartache and pain that the family of Moses must have felt when they had to bring back their baby after he was weaned to live in the palace of their worst enemies. What is that? In the story. No, 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 no. no. (laughs) I take this personally. As someone whose mother was a baby in a basket. I, I find it offensive to suggest that this story has any, anything real about it. Because I know what it's like (laughs) to hear it firsthand from a baby in a basket. Nobody forgets that their parent was a baby in a basket. My daughter knows that my mother was a baby in a basket. People don't just forget about it, but Moses, he forgot about it. No. I am offended as a Jew (laughs) by the notion that people just forgot about their massacred babies or that they were a baby in a basket. The story of baby Moses appears in Exodus before we know anything about who this baby will become. But, as with every origin story ever written by humans, it was written after the character already became widely known. Even if this story appears earlier in the book, origin stories are always written later. Once a character is fleshed out or becomes famous, then there is a need to explain the backstory. How did the character begin his journey towards greatness? Hmm? Let me tell you how. The origin story of, say, Batman. Seeing his parents gunned down in a Gotham alley by a criminal. That might be the first chronological event in the Batman saga. But that story was produced only after the Batman character was conceived, fleshed out and published. A crime-fighting vigilante who doesn't use guns. Why does he use all these gadgets instead of taking advantage of the Second Amendment of the Gotham Constitution and carry guns everywhere? Well, his parents were shot by a criminal. That's why. That's just the nature of origin stories. 
they're added to an already existing myth or fame. Moses is important, and our very talented writer thought he should have his own origin story. The baby in a basket story is not a journalistic account of a fortunate baby, and our very talented writer just happened to be there, you know, hiding in the reeds and listening into the conversations and putting it all down to text, and then luck so had it. <laughs> Divine intervention. 20 years later, that particular baby he just happened to see there grew up to be someone really important. Moses. No, 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 no. This story assumes you know that this baby is going to be a hero. Moses. Ooh. He's in the palace. He's inside the palace. Roll credits. <laughs> this is like the ending of the first Matrix. Ooh. The baby is Moses. The Baby Moses story is just an origin story for an established legendary character. Speaking of origin stories for legendary characters, The Baby in a Basket has been a very popular archetypical origin story from the ancient world up to King Arthur and even Superman. This archetype predates the Moses origin story written by our very talented writer. Many special people, real and imagined, had an origin story of being sent out from their parents because of danger and raised by others. My mother conceived. In secret, she bore me. She sent me in a basket of rushes. With tar, she sealed my lead. She cast me to the river, which rose over me. This is not a monologue by Moses. This is a story of baby Sargon of Akkad. He might be the first great person, quote-unquote, of recorded history. He put the Semitic people on the map by turning from a warlord into a king, into a sort of emperor. He needed a special origin story after conquering large chunks of Mesopotamia in the 2300s BC. Remember the library of Ashurbanipal established by the Assyrian king in the 600s BC? I discussed that in the episode 35, how it inspired many Genesis stories. Well, the story of baby Sargon in a basket was famous enough to be included in the royal library. And that's how we know it exists. One of the meanings of the name Sargon is the legitimate ruler. More about that in a second, but giving yourself the royal name of the legitimate ruler is kind of a self-reporting. And a funny anecdote. The name of Sargon of Akkad wasn't Sargon. <laughs> it's Suruukin, Shuruukin, Shuruken, Sarugen, Saruumki, or maybe even Lugalgina or Lugalgin, Lugalukin. All those are possible, but not Sargon. We know him as Sargon because of a single mention of him in the Bible, in the book of Isaiah. So the baby Sargon and the baby Moses stories are both what scholars call an exposed baby archetypical story. I call them abandoned baby stories. And there are many of them. Baby Horus, the Egyptian deity with the head of a falcon. He was born to his mother, the goddess Isis, 
in the marshlands of the Nile, and she hid him from her evil, murderous uncle, Sith. In some stories, he was rolled in a papyrus made of reeds. In other stories, in a little boat made of papyrus. The baby horse, baby Sargon, and baby Moses stories all highlight female agency. Whereas the male characters are either the antagonists, absent, or not important to the story. This abandoned baby motif made its way to Greek mythology with Heracles, Hercules. He was given up in secret to be raised by another family to protect him from the wrath of the goddess Juno. Then a female character saves him. He's found by the goddess Minerva, who brings him to the evil Juno, who breastfeeds him herself. Like the pharaoh raising Moses, the enemy empowers the new hero. Famously, Oedipus, who ended up killing his dad and marrying his mom. He was abandoned as a baby in the mountains. Karna from the Hindu Mahabharata is exposed to a river, abandoned in a river. If you remember Gilgamesh from the Epic of Gilgamesh, we talked quite a bit about him last season. We don't have any Akkadian or Babylonian texts about his birth, but we have a Greek one that has him thrown as a baby off a tower. An eagle saves him mid-fall. Hmm. Remus and Romulus were abandoned along the river Tiber, and Romulus grew up to found ancient Rome. There are similar stories stretching as far as China, Indonesia, and Japan. I want to go back to Sargon, the legitimate king. So, the basic motivation for the story format of a highborn raised as a common man is to legitimize to legitimize an illegitimate ruler. Oh, you know me as Salgon from around the corner, <laughs> the son of uh, Joe Shmuel. But behold, I was the rightful heir to the king, abandoned as a baby, raised as a commoner in the home of Joe Shmuel. Are you writing this down? Okay, okay, spread it around, spread it around. So as we can see, humans have been telling different versions of the story since forever. The core is identical, and only the details change. This is how ancient literature is done. The writer is not looking to invent a new origin story out of whole cloth. This would be inconceivable. <laughs> Inventing a new legend altogether? Doing things and performing exploits heretofore unheard of? Well... That would be unheard of. No. An ancient writer takes a well-known story and adapts it. He gives it his own twist. In the ancient world, there was no premium on originality in legends. Hell, today there is no premium on originality in legends. If you write a script for an origin story, movie, in any cinematic universe, you better adapt an existing story from a more ancient text, i.e. an officially published comic book. You know, if you don't want the Marvel zealots camping outside your Twitter profile. <laughs> we like our legends and our folklore to ring a bell. And the Baby Moses story definitely rings a lot of bells. Alarm bells! <laughs> 
It's pretty clearly a Hebrew adaptation of the globally known abandoned baby story. It is not about the actual birth of the actual Moses, if he ever existed. The only account we have of his birth is by our very talented writer. And it is a straight up adaptation. We had many such adaptations in Genesis for the archetypical flood story, the archetypical story of a high tower that gets humans too close to the gods and thus in trouble, the archetypical story of a prophecy you cannot stop from becoming a reality no matter how much you try, and on and on it goes. This baby Moses story is a legend written by our very talented writer. As factual as the Oedipus story. All we have is a text whose format is that of an extremely famous and well-known legendary iconic story. So it's very short, very succinct, very concise, low on details. A special baby is abandoned and then he makes it. And up, yada yada yada, fast forward to adulthood where the exploits are performed. That's the templates in all these legends, including the one of baby Moses. But our very talented writer is not just one to take a template as it is. Nah, nah, nah. That's not the kind of guy he is. He wanted to add his own sauce to it to make it spicy. All those different tales took a little bit from here, a little bit from there, made it its own. And it still works today. This just makes me think more highly of him. He didn't write it out of his ass. No, there are layers upon layers in this story. So those archetypical baby stories are always about a high-born hero who grew up hiding as a low-born. Not knowing, in fact, that he was royalty all along. This is the reveal. The Moses origin story is the opposite. He was raised as a prince, but he was in fact a slave all along. An opposite reveal. Biblical scholars have been working on the baby in a basket story for decades. Let's go over their findings. So the most interesting research that I read is by the famed scholar, Dr. Richard Edith Friedman, in his impressive book, Exodus. That's the name of his book, a new book named after an ancient book. <laughs> so Friedman proposes that the original Moshe, Moses, might have been an Egyptian noble who through some sort of political upheaval became a leader of slaves and led these slaves out of Egypt and to legitimize himself to the slaves as one of them, he had his scribes say that he was born a slave and only raised as a prince. One of the clues that led scholars down that path is that of the name of Moses, Moshe. That in this story is supposedly derived from the Hebrew root of taking something out of the water, Mashitihu, and this is why his name is Moshe. But, it's been some time since theologians and scholars alike have known that Moshe is not a Hebrew name, but an Egyptian name. Mese, Messi, is an Egyptian root for child of, like Ra, Meses, 
Ramses, child of Ra. There are records of sons of kings in Egypt being called Meser, child of, as a shorter version of son of the king, for example. There is also an Egyptian a Coptic word for water, Mu, that could be the original meaning of the name Moshe. So some philologists think that Moshe is a combination of two roots, Mu and S, which would mean child of the Nile. And here we have a baby of the Nile in the Bible, raised in the king's palace. So in Friedman's book, he explains that there are only eight characters in the entire Bible with an Egyptian name, Moshe, and others like Pinchas, Hophni, and Hu. What do all of these eight characters have in common besides their Egyptian name? They're all Levites. They hail from the clan of Levi. Mm. And following a convincing logical path, Friedman shows how the Levites introduced to the general Hebrew population their memory of the bad times that they had in Egypt as foreigners. And that later became a national story, a national memory. And we'll see it in future seasons. The Levites have a motto of treating foreigners kindly because they were foreigners in Egypt. That's all over the Bible. And it makes sense that this would be an ancient communal memory by the Levites, passed down through the generations. Because this is how ancient memories work. They remember the hard times they had in Egypt. They don't remember the babies, though. You know, if the baby genocide <laughs> was canon, you bet your ass these Levites would have never shut up about it till freaking today. You know, fucking Levites, thank you for the circumcision. That's on you. You introduced the cutting of the penis, which is another link that the Levites have to ancient Egyptian heritage because circumcision in the ancient world was widely known to be an Egyptian practice. So we have the Moses Egyptian name, the other Levite Egyptian names. We have the Levites' ancient memory of being foreigners in Egypt. We have the Levites' Egyptian cultural practices. An alternative writer has Moses raised by the Egyptian royal family. So one could say that all roads lead to Egypt. But this is actually the entirety of the evidence. And there is also a problem here. Our very talented writer mistakenly thinks Moshe is a Hebrew name. Uh-oh. So do we trust the solitary account by our very talented writer of Moses having Egyptian origins through being raised in the Egyptian royal court, but we disregard the same very talented writer who does not know that Moshe is an Egyptian name. So does he know anything about the origins of Moses? And then scholars are presented with an additional problem that our very talented writer created for them. It is the Egyptian princess who gives the Hebrew name to the Hebrew hero, derived from the Hebrew verb to take out of the water. And scholars know that Egyptian princesses did not speak the slave immigrant language of Hebrew. 
Uh-uh. Our very talented writer produced a story that if we take at face value as a serious account, it includes evidence of Moses having Egyptian roots. Then he fumbled another piece of evidence of Moshe actually being an Egyptian name that would link, that would further reinforce those supposed Egyptian roots. And then, as part of the evidence, <laughs> he added lines in Hebrew to a non-Hebrew speaking character. For scholars, this is a conundrum. I myself don't see it as a problem at all. Let's Start with a princess speaking Hebrew. Come on, come on. This is a story. That's how you write stories. Ancient Romans in Shakespeare and on HBO speak English with all kinds of British accents. <laughs> and in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, aliens speak English. Okay, right. The Bible is different, one might say. Is it though? <laughs> you know, it might not be Marvel, but in the Egyptian dystopia cinematic universe, the Egyptians speak Hebrew. All of them. Whenever they are given lines, they speak them in Hebrew. This is a Hebrew legend. Of course the Egyptian princess speaks Hebrew. <laughs> Guess what? In the previous chapter, the Pharaoh gave the order to kill the babies in Hebrew. He was addressing his own people. He was so proficient in Hebrew that he delivered the decree in a memorable one-liner that Hebrew-speaking people who live today still remember. Oof, that's the level of Hebrew that the king just exhibited. The king's daughter speaks to her personal slaves in Hebrew. <laughs> she converses with Moses' sister in Hebrew. But suddenly, when a verse later, the princess gives a special baby a name derived from a Hebrew verb, now everybody loses their shit. <laughs> they take the story too literally, and I think they miss the point. If we are to continue on this journey, let's understand the world that I think our very talented writer lived in. The Babylonian exile. What is the origin story of the Hebrew exile in Babylon? The evil king Nebuchadnezzar. He was the last real Mesopotamian ruler. And as long as he had power, and he did for 40 years, he reigned supreme. His father and his allies annihilated Assyria, ending 300 years of Assyrian supremacy starting from the 900s BCE. Nebuchadnezzar ascended to his father's throne in 605 BCE and immediately either swallowed petty kingdoms that agreed to pay tribute or crushed to those who resisted vassalage. By then, the kingdom of Israel was but a distant memory and Judah housed Judeans and Israelites in what was, frankly, a meaningless territory whose only importance was as a geopolitical pawn in the chess game played by the two powers of the day, Babylon and Egypt. Judah was part of proxy wars for world domination. And here come the two rival Hebrew factions, 
the hawkish faction and the pragmatic faction. The hawkish faction aligned with the Egyptians and the pragmatics with the Babylonians. And they each took turns in placing their own candidate on the throne. But things changed dramatically when the Babylonians couldn't stop winning and Egypt was fading away from Mesopotamia back to Africa. That left the hawkish faction without geopolitical and military backing. Maybe they just couldn't admit their miscalculations, or maybe they really believed their own promises and prophecies. They replaced their worldly geopolitical and military backing with divine geopolitical and military backing. Okay, that plan never worked. Not for a moment. King Yehoiachin, if you remember him from episode 36, he lasted only three months on the throne. He was deposed by Nebuchadnezzar and his armies that were coming at Jerusalem to sack it. But a deal was struck. The city remained unscathed, and the 18-year-old king, he surrendered himself once he was promised safe passage and the same royal lifestyle in exile. And we have ancient records <laughs> of the nice food King Yehoiachin and his family got to eat during their time in exile. Mm -hmm. Here is one of the historical accounts in the Bible. Notice how this harrowing tale is delivered in dry and monotonous tones. No irony, no layers of meanings, no wordplays, no iconic lines, no plot holes, no cliffhangers, <laughs> no climactic endings. A historical record. He carried all Jerusalem into exile. He meaning Nebuchadnezzar. All the officers and fighting men, and all the skilled workers and artisans. A total of 10,000. This would be the first wave of exiles, and it included the royal family and court, the political, religious, and economic leaders, maybe soldiers, and thousands of top craftsmen, artisans, blacksmiths, and laborers. The year was 597 BCE, and the Babylonian exile had begun. The final wave of exile would come 13 years later, after Jerusalem was destroyed. These were two distinctively different communities that went through starkly different experiences in Babylon. Their texts are as dissimilar to each other in tone as they could possibly be. Today we're focusing on the first wave of exile, as Jerusalem still stands and the possibility of a divine Yahwistic victory over the evil king is still a dream one can dream. We have one such unaccounted dreamer prophet from exactly that time. His name? Anonymous. He's a very anonymous prophet. Biblical scholars nickname him Isaiah II. The prophet Isaiah popped in earlier in the episode because he called Assyrian king Surukin Sargon, Sargon II. 
Isn't it ironic <laughs> that a nobody like the prophet Isaiah is more famous than King Salgon II, who ruled the world in their time? Anyway, Isaiah is Ishayahu in Hebrew. Yahweh will save me. Or Yahweh save me. But it's more like, it's not saving, it's salvation. It's like, salvate me. Does that exist? <laughs> Yesha, Yasha, salvation is the same root as a biblical character called Yeshua, later translated as uh, Jesus. Hmm? A savior whose name is Savior. <laughs> what a coincidence. <laughs> Maybe Isaiah will be our savior in this episode. His book includes several texts written by a very mysterious and talented prophet, nicknamed Isaiah II. We call them prophets, but they're basically community religious leaders trying to attract followers to their cause. The OG Isaiah died long before Nebuchadnezzar was conceived, so for many decades, scholars and theologians have known that several people contributed anonymously to the book of Isaiah from later periods. So the OG lived in Judea under Assyrian domination. Isaiah too was part of the first wave of exiles before Jerusalem was destroyed. Then another anonymous writer adds texts 50 years after that, when the Babylonians were overthrown by Cyrus and the Persians. Hmm. Okay, so before we get to know the very anonymous prophet Isaiah too, Let's refresh what we've learned about our very talented writer. Mm. He's feisty, yet uh, unpretentious. His stories are simple and direct, yet his humor is subtle, and his one-liners memorable. He wants to topple the evil king, sure, but he's not stupid about it. The king is still the king. <laughs> and when you come at the king you best be smart about it. You have to be resilient, sneaky, and stay the course. But the lack of Yahweh and divine interventions, on the one hand, and on the other hand, all the characters that are regular people, that tells me that our very talented writer is a humanist at heart. He's into people. The protagonists in his two stories are everyday people. So that's my sense of our very talented writer who lived in exile in Babylon. Now let's get a sense of our very anonymous prophet through his chapters. We know that he came in the first wave of exiles because one, Jerusalem still stands, and two, his audience is made of craftsmen, blacksmiths, farmers, artisans, and laborers that was sent in that wave of exile by the thousands. It's called in Hebrew, Galut HaCharash V'Amasger, the exile of the craftsmen and blacksmiths. So the first text of our anonymous prophet is Isaiah chapter 40. And the person who wrote this just blows it out of the water. It's like ancient rap, which makes sense because both are public speaking in a forceful energetic, aggressive manner. Our very anonymous prophet just steps into the mic and goes (laughs) 
כל גיא ינשא, וכל הר וגבעה ישפלו, והיה עקב למישור ורחסים לבקעה. בום. This is supposed to be action, 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 action. Here it is in English, about how Yahweh is the most powerful, and you're no match for him. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged place a plain. Ugh, it's double the words. Needless <laughs> to say that the beat is lost in translation. Anyways, our very anonymous prophet maintains the same energy and cadence throughout the chapter, with a few exceptions where he breaks down the rhythm and goes uh, on a little solo. It actually keeps things fresh throughout. So, the person who created this text, I must say, was very talented. I'm impressed. ממדד בשעלו מים, ושמיים בזרע תיקן, וחל בשלוש עפר הארץ, ושקל בפלס הרים וגבעות במאזניים. I would translate it freely like this. And even though it sounds like a, lame po- like a lame poem, in Hebrew it reads to me more like poetry slam. Who measured the seas in his palm, set the size of the sky with his pinkies, measured all of the sand, and weighed mountains on a pair of scales. Oh, the pair of scales is just horrible. In Hebrew it's one word, Mosnaim. And weighed mountains on Mosnaim. Huh? It has a beat. You know, wasn't set to music, obviously, but the text has great flow. And it's a bit humorous around the edges. Like, Yahweh is cool. I like this Yahweh who weighs mountains on a pair of scales and decides the size of the sky with his pinkies. He also has a line, Halo tedu, halo tishmeu, Hugad meroch lachem, halo avinote mosdot aretz. This is nice. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood how the earth was founded? He talks to the people. The text concludes with the inevitable victory of Yahweh and his people, even if we're currently losing badly. Yahweh is more powerful than any man, no matter how young or strong he may be, because in the long run, the Yahweh always wins. In this chapter, the prophet also talks directly to the Hebrew craftsmen, artisans, smiths, and farmers. And only a couple of verses for some herders. He's using their vernacular to illustrate his point that Yahweh is clearly the best. He's number one. Better than all the other pretenders out there from the east coast. In the next chapter, there are again sets of successive questions with one answer at the end. Yahweh. Who has steered up the one from the east? The one from the east, Nebuchadnezzar. Who has steered up the one from the east? Who subdues kings before him? Who turns them to dust with his sword or bow? Boom, Yahweh, he has the illest beats and the dopest bars, Yahweh. This chapter feels like a coach during a fourth quarter timeout. We're down 20, yes. We're facing the greatest team out there. <laughs> the Babylonians, sure. People are hungry and thirsty, I know. And it's directed at the common people. It's like workers of the exile unite. 
encourage each other, solidarity, you know, and also it laments the condition of the poor, promising that Yahweh can assuage their thirst with the aforementioned uh, rivers and lakes uh, he created. This guy, he's not with King Yehoiachin and all his fancy meals at the palace. No, 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 no. For this guy, Yahweh is saying to the poor people, I know what you're going through. I know things are rough, but I'll be back. So I'm starting to get a sense of the very anonymous prophet. He feels kinship with the common people. He's talented and smart. And I think he's a little bit funny. That's my sense of him. The next chapter, chapter 42, that's an ode to Yahweh, a love song to Yahweh. So a servant of Yahweh will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed, reed, okay. A bruised reed he will not break. A servant of Yahweh will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justi- justice on earth. So that is what our very anonymous prophet thinks we should do in exile. Play the long game. Be smart about it. Don't shout in the streets. No. In faithfulness, you will bring justice. We shouldn't be violent. A bruised reed. The servant of Yahweh will not break. No, he won't even snuff out a weak flame. We have to be gentle. And when Yahweh will hit them, it will hurt. This is what our prophet predicts. He gets a little brave heart. Yahweh will march out like a hero, like a warrior. He will stir up his zeal. With a shout, he will raise the battle cry. It will triumph over his enemies. So we just have to hang tight until the time comes when Yahweh will do all that hero shit and triumph and all that jazz. Hmm? But all this is not the only thing that rings a bell with this very anonymous prophet. It turns out that all of the stories written by the very talented writer scholars call the e-source for Exodus, all of his stories have references to them as hidden Easter eggs in the texts of the anonymous Isaiah 2. An Easter egg is a hidden message, a cryptic reference, maybe an inside joke that fans are intended to discover. You know, it's a television show or movie, but it could be the Bible. (laughs) We are fans. (laughs) In the previous season, I've gone over the many Easter eggs that Baruch placed both in the book of Jeremiah and in his texts in Genesis. Joseph, Easter egg in Jeremiah, Baruch's own name, Easter egged (laughs) in the story of of the slave of Abraham, and on and on and on it goes. This is how it works. And this is actually what scholars will, would consider scholarly evidence. One Easter egg can be a coincidence. Two, three, this is five, at least. So I mentioned the reed earlier. That's an Easter egg for the baby in a basket story. Keolda F.E. is an Easter egg for the midwife story. I was cited before, but now... I will cry out like a woman in childbirth. 
כיולדה אפעה. כיולדה אפעה in English translated as crying out, but it's not like crying out. פועה, פועה. It's the sound a goat or a sheep makes, like an animal. It's super, like, you could say it's weird, but I think it's just unique. And, you know, from my own experience, <laughs> watching a child <laughs> being born, yeah, that's super animalistic. And the root of F.E. is Po'a. Po'a. This is the name of the midwife in the story by our very talented writer, Pu'a. Pu'a and Shifra. They are the only named midwives in the entire Bible. One of the few named female characters in the Bible. And theologians and scholars have no clue as to why would the writer of the story put in those two queer names that you don't really know what they mean, they don't make sense. So I have a suggestion. This looks to me like an easter egg. Symbolically signing your name on a page. I put quill to parchment on both of these texts. Mm-hmm. And there are three other easter eggs for three upcoming stories by our very talented writer about the burning bush, about a conversation he has with his father-in-law, and about the Song of the Sea. Hmm. I don't know what the mathematical odds are that five stories written by one single person, the e-source for Exodus, would all be coincidentally directly referenced in four chapters written by another one single person. Isaiah 2. And that the tone and styles of both people are the same. The political stance versus the king is identical. The social views are identical. The humor, identical. So when I read all this, that's enough for me to believe that our very talented writer and our very anonymous prophet are in fact a team. Like Jeremiah and Baruch, a prophet and a writer. So what we have here is a prophet-writer tandem from the first wave of exile to Babylon who are feisty, smart, and funny. The problem is that the only prophet who operated in that time and who has a book in his name is Yechezkel, Ezekiel. And he doesn't fit our profile at all. What we want to know is, is how the supposed baby genocide and how is the child of Moses in the Egyptian royal court either unknown to all other writers from the exile community or that these stories were not canon, meaning that they were rejected by the big wigs in charge of approving texts during the exile. And only later, the stories were added by an editor who knew nothing of that ancient beef. This is, of course, too much to ask. To have all the pieces scattered in all the different texts in what we know as the Bible, somehow come together and fit harmoniously together. Multiple stories converging into one. Ugh. Finding anything that could shed any light on this mystery would be akin to finding a holy grail. But 
in Yahweh we trust. And if we trust in Yahweh, we must also trust His only officially approved and licensed speaker on earth, the prophet Jeremiah. We will feast on this letter exchange in many episodes to come. But this has been a very long journey, and we are all tired and want to reach our final destination safely, without excess information we don't really need right now. I almost want to tell you not to check out for yourselves Jeremiah chapter 29, because there are many spoilers there <laughs> for future episodes. But it's your call, Jeremiah 29. This is a letter exchange between Jeremiah and the Hebrews who were on the first wave of exiles in Babylon. There are only three remaining prophets whose names we know who prophesied a victorious Yahweh over King Nebuchadnezzar and a swift return to the land. These are the three prophets Jeremiah denounced as false prophets. Achav ben Kula Tzidkiah ben Masiah and Shmaya Anechelami, Shmaya the Nehelamite. Those are the only leads we have left. What we're looking for is any information that will suggest that A. They had a scribe, B. Were very prolific for a short time and then vanished from the face of the earth. C. Is there any plausible explanation as to why the tandem baby stories reappeared only much later and added to a narrative that didn't include it? And D. We want to see if uh, our impression of these three prophets fits our profile in any way. It's like a serial killer profile, but for a serial writer. So, as you can probably understand for yourselves, it is pretty unlikely that we'll find any help in ancient letters written 2,500 years ago. And predictably, our first two leads are dead ends. Nothing about Achav ben Kulia or Tzidkiah ben Masia to give us anything. We cross them off the list. And we have one possible candidate left. The very obscure Shmaya Nechelami, Shmaya the Nehelamite, he hails from a place called Nachlam or Nachlem or Nechalim rivers. What do we have here about him? Oh. Oh my. In the letter Shmaya the Nehelamite sent to Jerusalem to complain about Jeremiah, and in the letter Jeremiah sent back to Babylon, to settle his personal score, we have everything we wished for. It's all here. Shmaya had a scribe. Together they produced many texts. These texts were either destroyed in Babylon or considered non-canonical. We are given the reason why they fell off the map. And incredibly, we have a direct and simple explanation as to how come these stories later found themselves back in the Bible as canon. This is an incredible story. 
when an editor got his hands on these texts, much that once was, was lost. People didn't know about the Shema'ayah debacle, for none then lived to remember it. It began with the writing of a great book by Shema'ayah and his very talented writer, full of prophecies and legends. Dozens were given to the exiled community in Babylon, sad, despaired, and most unfortunate of all Hebrews. And hundreds were given to the entire Jerusalem elite, nobles, politicians, and priests. But Shema'ayah and his very talented writer were deceived. Because in the land of Judea, in the great house of Yahweh on Mount Moriah, the dark lord Jeremiah was shown in secret a damning letter by Shemaiah. So Jeremiah had Baruch write a letter back to Babylon. And into this letter, he poured his cruelty, his malice, and his will to dominate all Hebrews. One prophet to rule them all. One by one, the free lands of Mesopotamia fell to the power of Nebuchadnezzar. But there were some who resisted. They fought for the freedom of Jerusalem. But the power of Nebuchadnezzar could not be undone. It was in this moment, when all hope had faded, that Nebuchadnezzar burned Jerusalem. And some things that should not have been forgotten were lost. History became legend, legend became myth, and for two and a half thousand years, Shmaya and his very talented writer passed out of all knowledge. But something happened then Jeremiah did not intend. The stories were picked up by the most unlikely creature imaginable. A biblical podcaster. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> in Jeremiah 29, in the letter that Jeremiah sent to Shemaiah, we learn that Shemaiah and his scribe and his very talented writer sent a copy of their book to all of the Jerusalem elite. In English, they translate the word books as letters, but his books included letters and other things. Jeremiah had Baruch write him a book, and that book included several of the stories of Genesis. So it's not just letters, they're books. This means that many, many people had his texts. Exactly the kinds of people who saved these texts generation after generation. Noble families, rich people, priests, people with scribes, people with archives, and after Jerusalem was destroyed, these people either were sent to join their exiled brethren in Babylon or immigrated en masse with their texts to Egypt with Jeremiah and Baruch ben and the successful community that they built in Egypt. In the letter that we have, Jeremiah slash Yahweh orders the exiled community to ostracize Shmayah Nechelami because he is a false prophet. As an official false prophet, 
his stories would surely be rejected as non-canonical. And none of the other writers from the Aether community would talk to them, much less collaborate with them. And this is very spooky, because when in future episodes we come back to the chapters by Isaiah 2, we'll be able to clearly tell which texts were written before his excommunication and which were written after it. His community turned on him. Oh. As he's expressing his frustration, he throws massive shade at Jeremiah. They're having an ancient rap battle. And rap, like the Bible, features a steady dose of indirect jabs at competitors and easter eggs and cryptic references that go over our heads if we don't have the context. But can we get a sense of what kind of person Shmaya was? You know, anything? We're gonna read some excerpts in a moment. But guess what? He's funny! <laughs> Shmaya is exasperated with Jeremiah. He's enraged by Jeremiah's prophecies of Babylonian supremacy with a divine Yahweh seal of approval. And he demands to know why is Jeremiah not reprimanded. Reprimanded, that's already funny. Because Jeremiah just had Nebuchadnezzar execute two prophets. So, reprimand him? <laughs> All the English translations butcher this and miss the ironic tone. My translation. In the past you put any unhinged and unbalanced person who goes around and prophesizes into stocks and dungeon. The unhinged or unbalanced crazy person he's talking about is Jeremiah. Who by that time was already thrown into a dungeon or pit. And was put in the public torture device, called in English, the stock. The way he describes Jeremiah, correctly by the way, <laughs> as a basket case, pun intended, without saying his name outright, is, in true rap style, massive funny shade. Who am I talking about? And then he adds, as if he's only now talking about Jeremiah, so why have you not reprimanded Jeremiah, who poses as a prophet among you? So Jeremiah sends back a letter to Babylon, demanding the Shmaya and his kin be excommunicated, claiming the Shmaya is a false prophet not sent by Yahweh. And that's why the stories by Shmaya and his very talented writer were not at first included in the first canonical version of Exodus. But because they created so many copies and put them just in the right hands. A later editor, I think our second editor, the one who wrote of the new king of Egypt who did not know Joseph. Here arose a new editor who did not know Shmaya. He lived much, much later. We can see that through his Hebrew. This is why these stories are right there at the beginning, yet do not affect the rest of the plot. And this is true 
for all of the stories that we're going to go over that are written by the e-source of Exodus, our very talented writer. And the editor put the prophecies by Shmaya into the book of Isaiah, uncredited, as well as texts from other uncredited prophets or writers who lived in Babylon during Persian times. So these would be Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 3. Here is the complete picture that comes out. Among those exiled to Babylon in the first wave are two people. Shmaya and his scribe, our very talented writer. While in exile, they collaborate on several stories set in the Egyptian dystopian cinematic universe, which serves as a setting for them to get their message across. Pesky resistance, solidarity between the everyday Hebrews going through the harsh exile. They also collaborate on prophecies that are not outright rebellious, just walking a very fine line. Those two talented individuals were very good at walking a fine line. The two prophets, Achav and Zidkiah, were so rebellious that they were executed, no questions asked. But Shmaya and his very talented writer, they were smart about it. And as part of the course, they do what all biblical writers do, plant easter eggs in their texts that reference their other texts. They kept the belief that Yahweh will eventually win out against Nebuchadnezzar. And after Jeremiah basically assassinated two prophets, Shmaya and his talented writer, decided to put all their texts together and send them, along with letters about Jeremiah, to everybody in Jerusalem. In turn, Jeremiah made them personas non grata, and they fell from grace. They were not part of the Yehoyachin elite clique, no. They were men of the people. But the writing project went on without them. Their texts ignored or discarded. Life went on. The tradition of Exodus slowly took shape and crystallized into what we know today. Shmaya and his very talented writer, they had a metaphorical baby between them, if you will, because they were oppressed and persecuted by an evil person. They had to abandon their stories in the hands of strangers to be kept safe. And they safeguarded their story, sealing it in a book that is as solid as any book. They sent their baby in the currents, hoping someone would feel compassion for their baby and take it in. Two or three hundred years later, someone picked up the abandoned baby from the rivers of time. An editor. He immediately realized that the baby in question is a good baby. A special baby. He then wrote texts and placed them in Exodus before and after the treasure he found in the basket. But what he could not do is make the other stories written way back when in the Babylonian exile, to know anything about what happened in those cancelled stories. The Bible was already close to the version we have now, and no one in it 
had any idea that supposedly babies were massacred in Egypt and Moses was raised by the Pharaoh's daughter. These texts found a home in the house of a biblical editor who raised them like royalty and they grew up to become all great and iconic literature. The end. This feels to me like a complete picture beyond my imagination. I seriously doubt that we will be able to find anything quite so harmoniously complete as this. I can find no plot holes. Because this is such a good story, it is still a little bittersweet. At least for me. We do not have the name of our very talented writer. All we have is the name of the prophet, Shmaya Hanechelami. But I feel like giving him a name. He has earned that. So I'm thinking maybe the prophet will be known henceforth as Shmaya, and his scribe would be known as Hanechelami or the Nehelamite. The very talented Nehelamite. It's a bit silly, but maybe it's so silly it becomes retro. <laughs> Send me your suggestions if you have any. So, Shmaya and the Nehelamite, please step forward. You two are the shit. I can't say I share your politics, but I'm not going to judge you for believing that you were speaking to Yahweh. Many people were on the same basket. And in hindsight, we know that none of you were speaking to Yahweh. So, big deal, you had an imaginary friend. Let's be honest, who doesn't? The bottom line is that you two have created a piece of ancient literature in the genre of a short legend. A compacted, sharp, satirical story that represents you in the best way possible and stands the test of time like no other short legend ever written anywhere by anyone. You two are very, very talented. So by the power no one has ever vested in me, I now pronounce you biblical authors. You may rest in peace. Okay, so that's it uh, for this episode. All our paths converged. The historical path, the storytelling path, and the writing path. Everything leads in the same direction. Prophet Shmaya and the very talented Nehelamite. In the next episode, we'll go back to our second editor, who I guess is the one who plays the story right here, and he connects it to stories we have of Moses in the desert. So I can't wait to learn more about him. I want to give a special shout out to a member of the tribe, Naomi, who really helped me with the website, with all kinds of things, when she clearly didn't need to. So I really appreciated it, and I want to give you a special shout out. Thank you, Naomi. Naomi is also one of my favorite names, both in Hebrew and in English. This episode, I think, is the longest of the podcast uh, so far. 
I didn't mean it to be this long, just I couldn't find what to cut out anymore and I didn't want to divide it into two parts. The next episode hopefully will be much shorter and also will not take as long.